this is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. Hi there. Welcome to the Disability Visibility Podcast. Conversations on disability politics, culture, and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Dr. Justin Bach. Justin is currently an internal medicine resident in San Francisco, California. You hear Justin talk about his experiences, disclosing his disability at work, process he had to go through, prove his fitness to serve as a physician because of his disability, the systemic ableism and racism, in medicine and medical education, and the benefits and risks of telling your story can be visible. You'll also hear Justin talk about the article he wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine titled Suicide, Rewriting My Story, which describes his battle with bipolar disorder and suicidality during undergraduate take graduate medical education. Please know our conversation took place in September 2020, and there will be discussions of hospitalization, death and dying, suicidality, suicidal ideation, and trauma. Are you ready? Away we go. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, so Justin, uh, thank you so much for being my podcast tonight. Thank you for having me. Like I said, I'm super excited to be here. Cool, I'm super excited too. As a UCSF alum, it's really excited to talk to other people who are just changing the game. <laughs> So I was wondering, just before we dig into things, uh, how are you doing right now as you know, a doctor who's treating patients in the middle of a pandemic? And you know, what has it been like for you and your colleagues at UC San Francisco? Yeah, I think it's been... Um, it's definitely been um, both very challenging and also, you know, very rewarding. I think, I guess I'll start with the more positive side. Um, You know, one of the things I think a lot about is the fact that I'm very fortunate to have a job and I have had a job throughout the entire pandemic. And, you know, it's one in which I I have the privilege to to try and help people. Um, That being said, I think there definitely is, um, you know, I, I think, in medicine, just like everyone else in the world, you know, there's a lot of feelings of like isolation and sort of our normal routines being very disrupted. And then I think these sort of additional um, trauma, I guess that I would say from from COVID and, um, you know, I, I think seeing people, you know, a lot of my colleagues have, have you know, seen a lot of people die because of COVID and um, really feeling very powerless. I think that's been something that's been very challenging for sort of healthcare professionals 
and loved ones um, worldwide. So um, I'd say I'm, I'm doing okay, hanging in there. You know, I think, um, you know, our program has had a lot of changes um, to try and sort of accommodate the sort of fluctuating COVID numbers that have been coming through. And, um, you know, overall, I think San Francisco is in a decent place compared to other places in the country. But, um, you know, we're definitely still on guard for who know for yeah for for what to, what is to come yeah and i'm wondering just how you are taking care of yourself as well like just you know try to stay safe but also you know really try to take care of your own well-being and you know practicing self-care yeah um definitely one big one for me is exercise i'm fortunate to um be able to run. It was, there was a short period of time where I wasn't because of the fires that have been out here. There's many various um, disasters, I guess, that have happened recently. Um, but for me, that's a really big thing. Exercise is a very big thing for me for maintaining my um, my mental health. Um, and then also really trying to um, spend time with people in a safe way. Um, I'm definitely a uh, um, I like to talk. <laughs> I can talk to a wall. Um, and so it's uh, trying to find ways to, to hang out with my friends. Um, it's also safe right now. That's great. Also, uh, you know, I saw recently that you tweeted that you just completed your internship. So congratulations. Thank you very much. How was your internship and, you know, in terms of just what you learned and what was challenging? Yeah, what are the next steps that you're training? So intern year was um, a roller coaster, I think, to say the least. Um, so my intern year was actually a little bit more than a year. So it was 441 days. Um, and, um, you know, in that time, I think, first, from the medicine side, I actually had a lot of fun. You know, I had a really, I love being in the hospital. Um, I love getting to take care of patients and talk with families and, um, like learn medicine, all oh, that was good. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm really into medical education um, and got to do a lot of kind of cool stuff from like presentations and papers that got published um, over the years. So that was pretty good. Um, for me, my, the other sort of roller coastery part was um, so I have bipolar disorder and um, really struggled this year with respect to my um, mental health. I um, have had my, I've had mental illness for a long, you know, for over 10 years. Um, and, um, I can't quite say that it was a surprise that I struggled this year, but, um, you know, I think even knowing that I was likely going to have some challenges, I don't think I was fully, fully prepared for sort of what was to come. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk more about that as we go along, but, um, now I'm fortunate to say that I'm in a, a pretty good place. Um, I feel stable and, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm back, I was out of work for three months and now I'm back. Um, and I've been back now for almost three months. So, um, yeah, feeling pretty good now. I imagine one thing that's really a barrier for a lot of disabled students to want to be doctors is the fact that there are very rigid kind of timelines in terms of training 
get better to education. So that's, you know, very difficult for people who have, you know, crises or just say, they basically take time off. That it's, you know, to put it, that's one of the responses mm-hmm. I hear that, you know, we have a, you know, this program is structured it this way. Did everybody kind of has to follow it or do you get a risk falling behind? Yeah, I think that um, first I would say it's definitely possible and I am living proof that it is possible. I am still in residency um, and I was hospitalized twice um, during the last year. Um, and, you know, I think the one of the important things for me was um, you know, there's certainly a lot of stigma around mental illness, but um, I was fortunate to come to UCSF for med school and really um, be in an environment that was very sort of welcoming and um, encouraging, like encouraged help seeking. And I think, and when I sought help, I was I felt like I was sort of treated in an appropriate, healthy, humane way. Um, and so I think that really sort of helped me as I moved into residency. And I was very transparent with my program and told them like I had bipolar. I disclosed it before I began residency. You know, I made sure that I had appointments, I had sort of um, accommodations I could go to my appointments. And um, that mostly worked, but it ended up sort of being a little bit, um, I think that unfortunately the sort of grad- graduate medical education landscape is a little bit different than the undergraduate medical education. So med school, I, yeah, like some, so undergraduate medical education is med school. Um, and so residency you sort of are now more into the worker category. Um, And I just found that um, the sort of policies and procedures that were followed were much less, um, they were much more stigmatizing and much more, for me, harmful um, than than that which I had sort of been exposed to in the past. Yeah, I think your disclosure is... It's still really tricky for anybody with, you know, an apparent or not apparent disability, you know, even in the application process to med school or just, you know, within a workplace setting where, you know, you need to be kind of forthcoming. And I think one of the things that's still kind of the burden on us is have to do a lot of, you know, advocacy and explaining and just so much kind of invisible labor like mm-hmm. you know these are things that you know don't get you know any sort of like compensation but it's really just as a survival technique so uh, you know what's kind of the frustrating aspects or just maybe there's rewarding aspects of just communicating with other people that you're gonna to be working with or that people are gonna supervise you yeah. um I'll answer your question, but I'm going to take a long way to get there. So I first want to say something that um, in relation to what you were saying, um, so um, Lisa Meeks, um, Dr. Meeks, she's a um, researcher. She's at the University of Michigan now, but she used to be at UCSF, um, and she used to run the student disabilities office. Um, and um, she just put a, published a book that was basically talking about disability and inclusion, and um, one of the things that she talks about is with respect to disability and inclusion, um, there are these ideas of 
compliance. And so, and so, so there are three kind of big um, ways to think about compliance. Um, so first is like strict compliance, which is when institutions just do that, which is um, the minimum required by law. Um, and then there's the spirit of the law where, um, you know, institutions sort of give more accommodations than what is legal, the legal minimum. Um, but, but people still have to apply for accommodations and that in of itself is a barrier because many people don't want to disclose their disability or their illness. And then finally, there's the transformative sort of perspective, which basically creates, so for instance, if you think about like appointments, um, basically protects two hours out of the week for everyone so you can do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself. So if that's go for a run, you can do that. If it's go to see a psychiatrist, you can do that. If it's go to see your neurologist, you can do that. And so I think um, many, many, many institutions exist on the um, strict compliance and sometimes the spirit of the law. And um, so then moving into your question, which I have now forgotten because I was just on a little tangent, some of the things that I found challenging and rewarding. So um, for me, I have bipolar two, um, which means that my sort of periods of elevation are hypomanias and that usually manifests as me being like super productive and me sleeping less and um kind of um it's usually very channeled um to like be to do more work um and i think that's in contrast to what a lot of people think often of mania um where people are sort of very impulsive irrational grandiose um really have poor judgment um and what happened was you know i've been very transparent about my mental illness and um, I wrote this perspective piece that was in a big uh, medical journal about my bipolar. And so everyone kind of knows I have bipolar. Um, and I think when I ended up getting hospitalized, um, I think people really questioned my judgment, um, my ability to do my job safely. Um, and I've always been very, very conscientious about um, I call out of work if there are ever periods where I don't feel that I can focus or do my job appropriately. I've never had any dings on my sort of clinical or perform or professionalism. Um, and so I really felt like, um, I was being very strongly singled out. Um, and I had, I was forced essentially to go through a, um, what I consider to be pretty traumatic evaluation, um, with like drug testing and disclosing of all of my psychiatric records, um, and many other things. Um, and, um, yeah, for me, that was very harmful because this was not the UCSF that I was, you know, used to. And, I love UCSF. You know, I am, I am, I have repped UCSF so hard for as long as I've attended this institution. Um, and so this was really for me discordant with the image of this institution that I love so much. Um, and, you know, from there, there was a lot of, and I was sort of very, very, very vocal about the fact that I felt that this was wrong in so many ways. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate to know a lot of the higher people at UCSF and had many sort of very serious conversations with many people and um, was a part of a petition that was essentially, that was um, created to ask for a reform of the, the well-being committee and fitness for duty process. And um, that ended up being signed by over 600 residents presented to many of the high up people. And um, it seems like those advocacy efforts actually are making a pretty big difference. Um, I was actually told recently that, um, the fitness for duty process was just discussed in the like chairs meeting of all the departmental chairs at UCSF and um, have been promised by some pretty high up people that they're going to be quite substantial changes made. And 
so so I think that that's that makes me hopeful. You know, I would say on one hand, for me, it's it's a little bit sad because it doesn't particularly help me because um, I sort of have already been harmed. Um, but you know, I sort of accept things as they are and try to change them to make them better. And hopefully, no one else has to sort of go through the same process that I went through. And um, the last thing I'll say about this is, um, you know, I think that there was a lot of, um, so the process that I went through was classically made for people who have substance use disorders. Um, And I think it's very apparent in the way that they sort of do things. And for me, there still were massive problems, even though I do not have a substance use disorder. Um, And one of the arguments that I was often told was, well, no one's complained about this before. What I try to remind people is that, you know, folks who have stigmatized conditions, be they mental illness, substance use disorder, or what what, what have you, um, they don't want the world to know that their fitness for serving as a ph- physician is being questioned, you know, and they, they, they won't speak up. Um, but if you look at the objective facts of the things that I've pointed out, you know, I think, I think everyone would, would agree that, you know, you should have a, commu- a, a committee that is diverse and that represents the population that they are assessing and potentially removing their ability to work from. Um, So yeah, I'll stop there. So many of the structures and things that are not questions that are just you know, just at a par for the course, uh, are in particular, uh, you know, racist, ableist, sexist as hell. And despite <laughs> that, I think uh, more people are pointing these things out. I'm really here for all of the, the reckoning and the revolution in the medical profession. Yeah, and, and this is why I think what you're doing is so amazing because um, one of the things that unquestionably helped me so much in this process was the fact that I am not ashamed at all to be bipolar. Like I literally, I, for me, it's a part of me. It's like, I'm black, I'm gay, you know, like I'm bipolar. It's that's just like so fundamentally intertwined in who I am. You know, I try very hard to, to sort of contain it um, and make sure that it is not sort of ruling my life. But um, I think that, um, the, the lack of role models of, of people who are like, I have a serious mental illness and I'm an exceptional physician, you know, that just like, that's not a, that's not a message that we hear. And, and, and I think that's true of like so many forms of like, you know, disability. Um, and I think that's often because institutions push those people out. Um, and and not necessarily that it's always like intentional, but that they're just the structures are just so inherently toxic against people with disabilities that um, people leave because, you know, why why would you stay? You know, as you and I know, uh, you know, disabled people are incredibly unique in terms of just yeah. the talents and the perspectives we have. And, you know, this is much like uh, the medical profession is really driving away you know, people of color, because they may be able to, maybe let's say, 
Making it a medical school, but they're not retaining, you know, students of color for a whole host of reasons. And this really speaks to, again, this huge gap of, you know, in the workforce where, like, there are people who are reflective of the communities that they're serving. And this is, you know, there's a huge cultural competency issue. And that disabled doctors of all types can really just help so many people. I just feel like, you know, that's the loss because I think we're still not seen as a community. Ironically, it's still kind of radical to say disability is part of diversity, even though it's pretty basic for you and me, I think. Yeah, and no, I, I, I resonate so strongly with everything you just said. Um, yeah, and I think one of the one of the other things that for me felt sort of very frustrating is that um, the only reason that I ended up being listened to was because I sort of had to disclose my story in like very explicit detail. Um, and for me, that's just a huge problem. You know, like I'm I'm very open and I'm totally like transparent. Anyone who knows me knows that like I will answer like any question and I'm very vocal about things, but I don't think that people should have to share their story in order for, if someone says something is wrong, you know, I, I think that we should listen to people um, and look into it. You know, and one of the things that I often said, like this petition that we signed, that we wrote, we were like, you don't have to believe us. Like, please do an independent investigation for yourself. And we believe that you will uh, like very clearly see all of the many issues that there are. Um, and so, yeah, one of my like hopes in being visible and disclosing is that other people don't have to in order to sort of be treated like a person. Well, isn't that the dream? I feel like that's a good, you know, like one day nobody should have to like be forced to tell their story or just again, you know, relive their traumas, right? Like, you know, time and time again, I think people with disabilities are expected to like go into way too much personal detail just to get sort of take it seriously and you know there are times when people do it and then they're still not taking it seriously so it's like you do you have to have to redo you have to redo and you know I just want to bring up the essay that you mentioned it's titled uh, Suicide Rewriting by Story it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and you know why was it important for you to tell your own story in your own words because um, you know there are going to be always people kind of telling your story for you it is very different when you tell your own story so like can you tell me a little bit more about like what prompted you to write this because it's very public in a major journal that's you know a lot of your colleagues are, are going to read so that's pretty amazing. Um, it's something that I've wanted to do kind of for a while to basically, to me, this feels like, you know, I talk about, I mean, I came out as gay. I was like, this was like my like coming out story with respect to my mental illness. And, um, you know, everyone, my friends and family, anyone close to me already knew, but this is really, as you said, very, very public and very visible. Um, and, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that I find you know, with my particular disease is that when I get very depressed, 
I sort of become connected to this like artistic writery side of myself. And it's always very interesting. And sort of one way that I sort of cope when I'm depressed or suicidal or, you know, having a rough time is, is to write. And so um, I often find that I'm able to communicate things by writing that I'm unable to through speaking. So this particular piece I actually wrote um, when I got hospitalized in December. And so basically in it, I talk about the process of me, and it was a voluntary hospitalization, um, which actually for someone like me, that's actually a, a huge success because it means I didn't actually hurt myself to get into the hospital and that I like agreed to go. And so suicidality is something that I've lived with and struggled with intermittently throughout my entire life. And um, really just really mostly when I'm depressed. I'm not really suicidal when I'm not depressed, but I've I've been depressed many times in my life. Yeah. Um, so I basically wrote it when I was in the hospital. And part of that's because like when you're there, you're just like going crazy because it's so boring because someone like me who's used to doing, I'm used to flying at like a thousand miles an hour. Um, and then you're essentially like smack into a wall and just have to like sit there. Writing is kind of one way to express my energy that I can't when I can't run as well. You know, one of the things that I always felt like was missing from pieces in the big journals like this was I feel like people sort of start to talk about their like depression and maybe mention suicidality, but then they like run away from it. And I think that's because they don't want to, because the sort of environment for physicians with serious mental illness is very unfavorable. And I think they don't want to write anything that incriminates themselves um, or too much. You know, and I mean, and but to say, obviously, the other the pieces that I've read in like places like the New England Journal or JAMA are amazing and are really sort of art writers putting themselves out there. But I kind of wanted to push push that line a little bit more. Um, and so, in it, I really sort of talk about some of the like suicidal thoughts, kind of in detail that I have, and try to do it in a way that's not glorifying suicide, but to actually be realistic about my experience. And you know, in it, I also talk about the fact that I also had like. And objectively, I had a really good intern year um, and had a lot of cool accomplishments, but that sort of didn't, doesn't protect me from being bipolar. And so, yeah, I just really wanted to share this form of sort of art that felt very intimate and um, for me, like, honest, but not too, too raw for, because I think, I think if you go too overboard, the, the, this, these types of like places can't, they're not ready for it yet. But um, to really just move a little bit closer to where we can have this sort of radical transparency um, around topics like mental illness. It's beyond like surprising to me, you know, during this pandemic, especially. You know, when it first kind of really started to emerge, and all the data about how, you know, black and brown and indigenous older and disabled people are the most, you know, disproportionately impacted. And the fact that medical racism was not something that was like surprising to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. I think it was just like, bananas to me because I think that's 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 such a basic fact of you know medicine and healthcare Uh, what are some of the ways that you think the work that's ahead to really not just address 
the disparities, but clearly about, you know, this very large history of racism and white supremacy, which is also bound up with ableism, sexism, and homophobia, because there have been so many groups that have been straight up harmed, gaslit, traumatized. So, you know, speaking to other future doctors or just your colleagues, like, what's, you know, what is the responsibility of doctors to truly listen and learn from patients? So first, I think the first thing that I would say is, obviously, we need to diversify. Um, and we are failing to, um, for many groups. You know, I think medicine has made a lot of strides with respect to gender and, and medical students. Um, but then when you go up and you look at you know, full professors and like chairs and deans, then these, we still have these same huge, massive disparities. Um, and, um, you know, one of the, I'm a pretty, I like to tweet a lot. And something that a tweet that I put out recently was basically saying, you know, I see a lot of like male chairs of departments putting out tweets, her time is now. But I basically don't see anyone offering to like step down so that a woman can take, you know, his place. Um, and many people debate whether or not that's the right thing to do. But but the point that I'm trying to make is that as long as we have men who continue to occupy these sort of positions, women can't fill them. Um, and I think that applies to any of the ism like categories. You know, one thing that we often talk about um in like interpersonal level is this idea of like stepping up and stepping back. And sometimes, you know, there are times for people to step back. Um, and, you know, for instance, so I'm, I'm really, like I said, I'm really interested in medical education and um, we're actually working on this project right now, um, which I find super interesting, which is looking at how medical students want um, their supervising attendings or residents to respond to microaggressions in the clinical workplace. And it's a really cool study because we basically have people walk through um, various scenarios. So some with some sort of like, you know, gender related microaggression, um, one like disability related microaggression, a race related one, one like a cultural related microaggression. You know, so I think this is one, this is like one very small, but actually very tangible thing that people can do is if we want to sort of create more favorable environments to like reduce the leakiness of this pipeline, we need to create more favorable environments. And one of those things that includes like responding to microaggressions. Um, and, you know, people often think that this is not a big deal, but it actually, um, you know, I'm, I've been fortunate to be involved in sort of a, a series of studies that would strongly suggest otherwise. And that when people have microaggression, when microaggressions happen in the clinical workplace, then that basically occupies students' cognitive load. So they have less space to like think about the tasks at hand. And it causes students to experience stereotype threat, which is basically when students um, become aware of stereotypes about their group, and then basically fear fulfilling those stereotypes. And that has all sorts of Im impacts on performance. So I'm basically saying that to say, you know, I think, you know, we can think on the big structural level, of like, you know, sort of increasing recruitment and like admissions and all that stuff. But then once people actually get admitted to these places, we need to make sure that they're supported and have opportunities to thrive. 
Because the worst thing would be if you just admit these people and then you just sort of abandon them, expect them to thrive in these all white, all male spaces um, that are not made for them to thrive. Um, and then say, oh, well, these people aren't like, they can't do it. They, you know, they're not cut out for it. When in reality, they just weren't given a fair opportunity to have a safe learning environment to, to you know, to learn and demonstrate their learning. Yeah, and I think that's why uh, allyship or children's spiritship is all about, because it can't just be the work of the burden of the marginalized people in these spaces. That's, you know, we really do need people who have the privilege and power to really just, like, you know, draw stuff out and also to be really actively involved and transparent and accountable because, you know, that's a real way to show what you stand for. If that's, you know, if you clearly do believe that's, you know, Black yeah. Lives Matter, you gotta like yes. step up with you. Yeah. I mean, you need to step up when you're called out, frankly. And, you know, for people to like, I think one thing that bothers me all the time is that, you know, a lot of this lip service that just like, very kind of transactional nature of allyship with the sense that I'll be your ally as long as it doesn't cost me anything. And I feel like that's often the times where it's like they're very hollow. You know, that's people that you think should have your back really don't have your back. So there's that too. So what about your future? Like, you know, what do you see in terms of your career and like what do you want to do with your life in terms of you know treaty pages and your activism your writing you just everything that you're passionate about i okay first as far as my career i'm not entirely sure i'm strongly leaning towards being some sort of generalist in internal medicine um but we will see. So I have a little bit of time left to decide in residency. Like I said, I definitely, I, I love my medical education research and definitely want to continue doing that. And um, I do a lot of work in assessment and equity and equity in assessment. Um, so I definitely want to continue um, to do those things. You know, it's interesting this before probably, I've always been very vocal about you know, reducing stigma around mental illness. But I guess I would never have called myself an activist around like mental illness, like related things until this this last like six months. And then I've become a very sort of very, um, I've done a lot of um, activist work. And I think um, I really just follow my heart. I kind of just like do things that I think are important and interesting and then just like keep going. And so I really don't know you know, I, one of, one of my sort of internal things that I've been like sort of mulling that I'm, I'm not quite sure how I want to best attack it is I think the, I think the big sort of elephant in the room that needs to be taken down or um, the way that state, state medical boards 
question people about their sort of health conditions because it's very disproportionately skewed. It's it's bad in many ways, um, but it's very disproportionately skewed for for people with mental illness. And so that's something that that's like a dream goal that I have. That's like I you know I think it's like if I see a window, then I will go for it. And in some small way, I view what I'm doing now as starting to like work my way up towards that. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of my big for now. Hey, I'm ready to burn it down. <laughs> burn it all down and just uh, to restart, have actual, oh, you know, disabled doctors actually forming policies and be the leaders. That's what a novel idea, right? Yeah. You know, and I think one of the nuances that I've been, that I, I do appreciate is that the purpose of these state medical boards is to protect patients. I think everyone agrees about that. I think the thing that I strongly debate is what is protecting patients and what is best to protect patients. Because I would argue that making people afraid to get care or to disclose their you know, disability, um, I don't think that that's protecting patients. I think people always have disabilities and just hide them or do the best they can or not report them to the state medical board. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think that just creates a very toxic environment. I'm hopeful that, you know, a lot of, there, there, there are some institutions across the country who are really starting to like dig in in the sort of disability like world. And I'm hopeful that, you know, if we can get some of the like big name, big power places to support it, then we can sort of make a, make a big push. Well, I think with you, I just, you know, the board, you know, other dogs with disabilities, such as, you know, for the campaign by, created by Dr. Lisa Beeks. I mean, mm-hmm. this a form of community organizing, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, so important to know, to, to let people know that you all are there, you all exist. Mm-hmm. It also set the signal to the younger generations that, you know, they could do it, and that it's, you know, there are people just like them who are yeah. doctors, and, you know, I think that's so dated right now. This is so random, but um, my sister and I were just having a conversation, and, um, you know, we were talking about how, like, back in the day in, like, civil rights era, you know, Imagine those like little kids who like the who, when they were when there was like busing, and like the first black student in an all white school, and how much like hate and like terribleness those people experienced. And you know, my sister and I were talking like, why would anyone ever like do that? Like, why would why would someone send their kid into that, or why would any like like student want to do that? And I think you know, and in no way do I feel that I am in that same environment. But I think at least for me, what I feel pretty strongly is like. I feel like we belong. Like, I think I'm a good doctor. You know, am I the best doctor? No. Am I a very good doctor? I think so. And can I empathize with patients in a way that other people can't? Absolutely. That is one thing that I definitively know that I do better than a lot of people. And I think that we deserve a space here. And like, that's why I stay. And, you know, that's why I want more people to come because when we have more people sitting at the table with us, people can see the the myriad of ways that we improve our community and improve patient care 
like I actually, you know, like I think everyone's always like patient care, patient care, patient care, which it is definitely the most important thing. And I'm, I would, I very, very, very strongly personally believe that I don't have any data to prove this, but that docs with disabilities, I think provide, I would argue higher quality care. Yeah. I mean, this is anecdotal, but I think it's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, type of tool as we have like, growing numbers of doctors who identify as disabled and, you know, we can actually maybe do studies, who knows? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I think you and I know, and I think uh, that's why the lived experience is so important. And, you know, for all of the trade-offs and the risks of being visible, that's often why visibility is important and you know, representation is important because mm-hmm. it really does send a message that we've been here all along and also we belong, you know, unapologetically, which is, I think, you know, one of the things that really needs to be, like, emphasized again and again until people finally sort of get it. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to be mindful of your time. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to share that's, do we get to get talk to you that you just would like to talk about? Um, I think the only thing that I'll, and I'm sort of repeating something, but I just want to say it very explicitly, is that, um, you know, I think I'm hopeful that, at least within my institution, there'll be change. And I think that change only came because people were willing to fight. You know, there were many people who told me to sort of trust the system and that the system will like do the right thing. But I just don't actually believe that that's true, especially when you have a marginalized identity, whatever that identity is. And, you know, I really encourage people to 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 fight. I think you can do it in a diplomatic way. I think you can fight without burning your bridges. You know, I think for us in healthcare, at least. We all want safe learning spaces, have great high quality patient care, you know, and for people to like feel safe. Yeah. And I think that's like a uniformly agreed upon like thing. And so just to sort of remind people of how whatever the current structure is does not meet that, um, I think is one way to sort of bring in people as opposed to sort of pushing them out. Well, Justin, thank you so much for being my podcast tonight. Thank you for, for talking. Thank you for letting me talk for so long. <laughs> this podcast is a production of the Disability Visibility Project. And all of our community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying disability media and culture. All episodes including text transcripts are available at disabilitydivisibilityproject.com slash podcasts. You can also find out more about Justin on my website. The audio producer for this episode is me, Dallas Wong. The introduction by the team of The music by Vulture Sports Camp. To subscribe to our podcast, on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or Google Podcasts. You can also support our podcast for a dollar a month 
Adorable by Jojo Petrovich. Patreon.com slash DVP. That's P A T R E O N dot com slash DVP. Thanks for listening. This is you on the internet. Bye.